Turn with me, if you will, this morning to the book of Acts and to the 17th chapter where we pick up once again in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. Acts chapter 17. You might recall from last Sunday uh, that Paul and his missionary teammates Silas and Timothy were ministering along the east coast of Greece in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea, but having faced opposition and potential danger in those places, Paul was eventually escorted by friends to the great city of Athens in the south, where he waited for Silas and Timothy to join him soon. And that's where we pick up in the timeline of this missionary journey here in Acts 17, verse 16. We'll read all the way down through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idol babbler wish to say? Others He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. 
Father, I pray that you'd work today as you worked uh, in Athens that day, that some today who don't yet believe would join us and believe, and that others on the way would say, I'd like to hear these things again, and that those of us who do believe would be helped and encouraged by listening to the way Paul preached you and your son to the folks in Athens. Make us winners of souls like he was, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed that there is a significant shift in Paul's preaching here in Acts chapter 17, particularly when he is invited to speak in the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, as the King James renders it in English, this center of great philosophical discussion in the city of Athens. When he goes to Mars Hill, Paul doesn't take the same approach to preaching the gospel as he did, for instance, in Thessalonica back in verses 1 through 3. He doesn't go into this gathering of philosophers as he had done in the synagogue and immediately open up the scriptures and begin proclaiming to them the death and resurrection of Christ. Instead, on Mars Hill, he spends a good deal of his time in verses 22 and following addressing the Athenians' basic concept of God himself and even using their shrine to an unknown god in verse 23 as a jumping-off point. They had shrines in Athens to all sorts of gods from the Greek pantheon. The city, verse 16, was full of idols, but it seems that the Athenians were worried that there might be one more god out there whom they hadn't discovered yet, and so in verse 23 they built him an altar too, just in case. And Paul, perhaps surprisingly to us, acknowledges the altar and its inscription to an unknown God. And he says, in effect, let me tell you who he is. And then he proceeds to give a long explanation of the nature and character of the creator God. And then only toward the end of his sermon, there in verse 31, does he begin explaining Jesus. And we might be tempted to criticize Paul for this, saying that, He should have engaged or should not have engaged in this kind of philosophical discussion, but should have rather just gone in like he had done before and stood up and immediately preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've even heard it suggested that Paul's failure to do that in Athens is the reason why he seemed to gather only a few converts there as compared to his greater success in other cities. And I've often myself read this passage and wondered why Paul did what he did here. Loving what he says about God as creator and sustainer and utterly different from man-made idols, I've still often been puzzled as to why he seems to take so long before he finally gets to Jesus at the end of the sermon. But a few years ago, I heard Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis. Many of you know that name. I heard him speaking on this passage, and I was incredibly helped by what he said. In fact, that message from Ken Ham was like a key to me unlocking this passage and also teaching me, I think, a great deal about effective sharing of the gospel in a culture such as ours. And so I'm going to lean heavily throughout much of this message on what I learned from Ken Ham. And the great thing that I learned from him is that this passage is a classic example of the difference between witnessing to Jews versus witnessing to Greeks. Cultural Jews 
who are familiar with the Bible, who already basically believe in the one true God, are different from cultural Greeks, people like these Athenians, who are largely ignorant of things that we might take for granted about God. Jews and Greeks, those are Ken Ham's two key words. And so I want to just unpack those words for you for the next few minutes and share what I learned from him about this passage. Up until this point, Paul has been preaching the gospel largely to Jews and to synagogue-going Gentiles who had begun to believe and think like the Jews. He had been preaching to folks, in other words, who were familiar with the Bible and with the one true God of the Bible. Now, that was not exclusively the case, of course. Paul has had significant opportunity and success among the Gentiles at large. But even last week in chapter 17, verses 1 through 2, we saw that it was Paul's custom when he arrived in a new city to go straightway to the synagogue and begin his ministry primarily among the Jews. And when he went to the Jews, Paul was able to begin his presentation of the gospel somewhere in the middle of the story. He didn't have to go all the way back to the beginning, in other words. He didn't have to explain to the Jews all about the one true God, as he does for the Athenians here in verses 24 and following. He didn't have to tell the Jews that they were created by God, or that he is the one who gives us life and breath and all things, or that we're made in his image. They understood all of that already from the Old Testament. And so Paul, when he went to them, was able to pick up his gospel narrative in the middle, as it were. He was able to go straight forward into explaining Christ to them, as we saw last week. He entered the synagogue, he opened the Bible as it were, and he began explaining the long-awaited Messiah, how he had come and suffered and died and risen, and called people right then and there to faith in this Messiah as their king. But then Ham points out that when Paul gets to Athens... And especially when he receives this invitation in verse 19 to go and speak before this gathering of philosophers at the Areopagus, that in this setting, Paul cannot any longer begin his gospel preaching in the middle of the biblical storyline because he's not any longer dealing with Jews. He's not dealing with people who know their Bibles. He's not preaching to people who already believe in the one true God and therefore are in some ways already primed and ready to learn of his son. Now, Paul is preaching to Greeks. He's dealing with people who have little or no concept of the God of the Bible, people who worship multiple gods, people who are ignorant of so many biblical categories and truths. What they have already heard Paul saying in the marketplace sounds to them, verse 18, like he is proclaiming strange deities. And all of this, verse 19, is new teaching to them. And they say in verse 20 that Paul is bringing some strange things to their ears. Because they're Greeks. They don't know the Bible. They don't know the God of the Bible. And so Paul must approach his message, Ham says, in a different fashion. He must go back and lay the biblical groundwork, particularly about the nature and character of the one true God, so that his message of Christ will be intelligible to them. Just imagine for a moment that Paul had begun at the Areopagus, as he might have begun with a Jewish audience, proclaiming straight away to these biblically ignorant Greeks that God has sent his son Jesus into the world to die for our sins, absorbing his own just wrath against them. That would have been bold, wouldn't it? 
It would have been admirable. It would have been true. It might be what we would have expected Paul to do. But how intelligible would that message have been, really, if his hearers didn't believe in or even perhaps know about the one true God about whom Paul is speaking and from whose wrath they must be saved? They would have been left wondering, what God is Paul talking about? Is he talking about Zeus? Is he talking about Hermes? Paul, which God has sent his son? Or they may have just accepted what Paul said and lumped Jesus in with all their other deities, replaced the unknown God plaque in verse 23 with a plaque bearing the name of Jesus and just begun worshiping him alongside all their other idols. How could Paul effectively preach Jesus, the son and savior sent from God, if these people didn't either know about or believe in God himself? If they didn't know the creator, if they didn't know that he's different from the stone gods sitting in all the shrines around Athens. And that's Ken Ham's point when he notices the difference in Paul's preaching in Athens. Before his Greek hearers can make any sense of Christ and the incarnation and the cross, Paul has to lay the biblical groundwork to help them understand the one true living creator God. Paul has to go all the way back to the beginning. He has to explain that there is a living and true God. He has to convince them in verse 26 that this God created them. And verse 25 sustains their every breath. He has to convince them that the true God is not like the gods that they've created with their own imaginations and hands, verse 29. And so Paul's sermon begins at a different place in the biblical storyline when he preaches at Mars Hill than when he preached, for instance, at the synagogue in Thessalonica back in verse 3. Because he wasn't any longer speaking to Jews who knew about the God of the Bible, but to Greeks who were largely ignorant of him. And so Paul's message to these people, while it's not a different message, has to begin much further back in the story. Hear that well. Paul didn't preach a different message in Athens than he had elsewhere. He simply started in Genesis rather than in Matthew or even in the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. And so says Ken Ham very astutely, we had better learn to do the same when we share Christ because we live in the cultural West now in an era in which the populace around us is shifting very rapidly from Jew to Greek. Now, in saying that, Ham is not talking, of course, about literal ethnic Jews and Greeks. He's using the word Jews to refer to people today who, like the Jews in Paul's day, have grown up knowing something about the Bible, believing in the one true God, even if they don't worship him, believing that we were created by this one true God and therefore ought to obey and honor him. Those are our cultural Jews, and many of us are them. That's how we grew up. Fifty and more years ago, our culture was mostly made up of those sorts of people, in fact. Vast numbers of people believed in the God of the Bible, even though, as I say, many of them were not saved. But they knew that there was only one true God, and they believed that they had been created by him, and they had a concept of sin against him and guilt for it. And so, says Ham, for a long time, American Christians and Christians in the West in general could just start our sharing of the gospel right in the middle of the story. 
We could go like Paul in the synagogue, straight to telling people about Jesus, straight to the cross, straight to a call for repentance and faith, because people already had a framework for understanding what those things mean. They already knew about God and sin, and it made sense, therefore, to move very quickly to telling them about Jesus and how to be saved. But now, says Ham, we are like Paul in Athens. We're more and more surrounded, so to speak, by Greeks, by people who, like so many of the Athenians, have almost no concept of the God that we want to speak to them about. The idols in our day may be different, but the ignorance of God is more and more like Athens with every passing year as more and more children are raised with very little biblical instruction at all. Just as an example of that, when Toby and I first went to that little church, Buck Island Chapel, in poor, rural Tunica County, Mississippi, I well remember how at Christmas time, as a kind of introduction to teaching them about Jesus' birth, we asked a handful of kids, can anybody tell me whose birthday is on Christmas? Right? Just a good sort of icebreaker question. You ask that in our Sunday school class here, and they're all going to say, oh, it's Jesus. But we ask that, expecting that answer. Can anybody tell me whose birthday is on Christmas? And the closest anyone could come was to volunteer that they had a family member who was born on December 25th. Now, that's not the biggest deal in the world because we don't know that Jesus was born exactly on December 25th, but it illustrates a point, I think. Namely, that these children, growing up no less in the so-called Bible Belt, had very little idea of the basics of Christianity. And yet, they were still much more culturally Jewish than many today. I think most of them believed that there was one true God. They understood the concept of sin against him, but more and more... That knowledge that was once a given for most of our neighbors is no longer so. We're moving ever closer to Athens and away from Jerusalem. We're living among the Greeks, among people who either just don't know or they don't believe what we might assume everyone knows and believes. Of course, they have evidence all around them, as Paul argues powerfully in Romans 1, that there is a creator who deserves to be honored. That evidence is clearly seen, he says. And yet so many people are totally clueless, sometimes willfully so, as to what that creator is like. And often they've been indoctrinated against him from earliest childhood. And so says Ken Ham, and I think this is the great mission of Answers in Genesis, we must, if we are to share Christ with this generation of cultural Greeks all around us, we must, like Paul at Athens, go back to the beginning. We must, like Paul in Athens, realize that the God of the Bible is, more and more in our culture, an unknown God. And therefore, we must explain him to people as Paul does here in this chapter. We must go back to the very basics, back to the beginning, and explain the existence of the one true God and the fact that he's our creator and that mankind is made in the creator's image and therefore ought to honor and obey his maker. Explain to them that we've fallen in sin and that there is a judgment and that we therefore need a great redeemer. Because these are the very truths which must be understood if we're going to go on and explain to them who that redeemer is and see people saved. These are the truths that must be understood if people are going to see their need for a savior. 
And yet these are the very truths as in Athens so long ago that are strange to the ears of more and more modern Americans. So just imagine having your neighbor over for dinner and saying in the course of the conversation, you know, would you mind if I just told you briefly how Jesus can save you and make you right with God? That's a wonderful question. I hope many of you will find yourself asking that question to people. Can I tell you how Jesus can save you and make you right with God? But more and more, we're living in a culture in which that person's reply to you may be right with what God? Which God? Is there really a God? And if so, which one are we talking about? Or they might say to you, right with God? What could I have possibly done to be wrong with God? And if I did do something, wouldn't he just forgive me no matter what? Isn't that kind of like his job or something? See, even people who claim to believe in the one true God of the Bible are often totally ignorant of what he says about himself and of the obedience that he requires. And instead of being indignant with them, or instead of being flabbergasted that they have no clue about the God of the Bible or what he expects from mankind, we must be prepared, like Paul in Athens, to start at the beginning and to give them the answers. Now, that's a lot of introduction, I know. We haven't even looked in depth at many of the specifics in this passage, but I spend that time to unpack Ken Ham's argument and his assessment, both of Acts 17 and of the world around us and how the one applies to the other, I spend the time because I think he's right on the money. We must begin further back the biblical storyline when we are witnessing the cultural Greeks. We must start by making sure that they understand the one true God and what he is like and where we all came from before the message of Christ will make very much sense to them. And I believe, therefore, that Acts 17 can be incredibly helpful to us in making known to the people around us the one whom we love and know, but who may be to many of them an unknown God. In fact, that Athenian inscription quoted there in verse 23 is very helpful. I hope you'll remember it. More and more, in our attempts to share Jesus with those around us, we will have to learn to assume, not that they probably already know about the God of the Bible, but that for many of our neighbors, he is basically an unknown God. And so in order to tell them of Christ, we're going to have to first explain God. And so here we find Paul in that exact situation, in a city which seems to know very little of God, the God who made them, the God in whom they live and move and exist every day. No, the city was, verse 16, full of idols. And observing those idols, we read there that Paul's spirit was being provoked within him. And let me say, that's the right response. We ought to be stirred. We ought to be troubled. We ought to be provoked by the idolatry that exists around us. It's different than that in Athens, But it's there, and it ought to bother us to see so many people worshiping money and possessions, worshiping self-image, worshiping entertainment, worshiping sports, worshiping their children, worshiping sex, worshiping the politicians, sometimes as ultimate saviors or right now as really bad gods who've let us all down. We all tend to go and worship idols And when we see that in ourselves and when we see it in others, we ought to be provoked by our own city full of modern-day idols. 
And in Athens, Paul was provoked. He was troubled. But notice that he was provoked not to anger. He was provoked not to disgust, not to withdrawal from the Athenians, but to action. Isn't that what we read? Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He was provoked, he was troubled, he was bothered by the idolatry, so he went out and began to speak about Jesus to the people. And having gone into the marketplace preaching Jesus to the crowds at large, God gave Paul an amazing opportunity there in verses 18 through 21, didn't he? He met these philosophers of whom Athens seemed to have had an abundance, and they asked him to come to their big meeting place on the hill of the god Mars and invited him to give a speech there to the gathered crowd. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, we, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, as a preacher, I read that and I have to say, wow, what an opportunity. It's not every day someone like me gets invited to a secular gathering and asked to stand and give a summary of what it is that I teach and believe. But such were the conditions in Athens in those days. For better or for worse, verse 21, the, the Athenians were always itching to hear new ideas. And Paul took full advantage of that with what I think was an exemplary sermon, well-suited to meet his hearers where they were and yet to bring them forward to the knowledge of Christ. And I just want to spend the rest of our time walking fairly briskly through Paul's Mars Hill sermon and giving you just several bullet points that were a part of his preaching to these Greeks and that I think we should incorporate in our own conversation with folks around us. You may not often get to say all that Paul said in a single sitting, but you can learn from what he said, file it away, and insert these various biblical truths into multiple different conversations so that your Greek friends eventually have the whole gospel storyline presented to them. So how do we share the gospel with people who have very little concept of the one true God? Listen to how Paul does it here in Acts 17. First, He establishes a point of contact with these people. He establishes a point of contact with them. He finds something in their belief system that provides a little bit of an opening for the gospel. In this case, he uses their altar to an unknown God in verses 22 and 23. And without condoning their ignorance or condoning the way in which they attempted to worship this unknown God, Paul uses that altar as a jumping-off place for telling them of the one true God. And I think that's a wise strategy. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has set eternity in our hearts, set eternity in the hearts of men, that there's something within us that seems to know that there's a world beyond, that there's something bigger than us, And when we find our own neighbors or co-workers or family members grasping at that eternity somehow that God has set in their hearts, we can perhaps use some of their grasping, even if it's inadequate, even if it's misdirected, we can nevertheless use it as a point of contact, as an opening to share biblical truth, to show how Christ meets the longing that they feel. 
The point of contact in Athens was this sense that the people had that there might just be something else out there, another God that they haven't yet discovered. For people around us, it might be the question of what happens after death. Or you might have a friend who says, I really love this song, you should hear it. And you can tell that the song is yearning for something more and maybe then you can speak to them about what it is that we really all are yearning for. Or maybe you meet a young person who's in school and they are, they are telling you that they're searching for truth, capital T. Or maybe you have a Catholic friend who just feels that she's got to have a priest, someone to stand between her and God. Any of these things can be a point of contact into which you can say, like Paul to the Athenians, let me share with you what you're really looking for. But then having established a point of contact, Paul moves very quickly to proclaiming the creator God. And I think this is his main objective here. He He comes to the Athenians and he says, let me tell you about the one true God, in essence. The one who is for you and for so many in our day, an unknown God. And so, if the rest of it makes sense, as we've been saying, he's got to start here. These people have got to come to understand and believe in the God who made them. And that's what Paul sets about trying to accomplish. He preaches to them, verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it. And then he tells them in verse 26 that this God made from one man every nation of mankind. In other words, what he says to them is God made you and God made everything that you see. And he is, therefore, verse 24, Lord of heaven and earth. Until the Athenians get that, as we said before, they'll just lump Jesus in with all their other little gods. Maybe build him a little shrine And be better off than, no better off than they were before. So Paul must tell them about the God. Not the one, verse 29, that they've made by their own art and thought. But the one who made them by his art and thought. And to whom, verse 31, they are accountable. And our culture needs to hear the same message. Even though the surface level reasons that our culture needs to be told of the creator may be a little bit different than was the case in Athens. Our, uh, their culture believed in gods. Our culture more and more believes in no god at all. But the need is still the same. People need to hear, verse 24, of the God who made the world and all things in it. They need to be told, verse 26, that he made from one man every nation of mankind. Because in our culture, where life is so often explained as merely the happenstance outcome of evolutionary processes, the logical outworking of that is that we came from nowhere. We're really accountable to no one except maybe cultural norms. And who knows what happens after we die? That's the logical outcome of believing that we all exist by chance, evolutionary processes. Life has no meaning Morality is really baseless and is just a human construct. And eternity may not even exist. And so life really becomes just about enjoying it as much as you can. And though your neighbors may not articulate all of that to you, they may not even realize that that's the process that they have gone through in their worldview, that's what many of them are left with. That's the worldview that flows naturally out of evolutionary theory that they've been force-fed. 
the eternity that God has put in their hearts has been systematically muffled so that they can barely hear it anymore. And so what good are Jesus and the gospel to them if all that seems to matter is getting to the weekend and getting a raise and retiring well and having what they'd like? What good does Jesus and the gospel do them if God is a distant or non-existent reality? They must be told that someone made them, that the idols that they're chasing are mere trifles, that they exist with a higher purpose and are accountable to their maker. Or else our message about Jesus, our message about sin and salvation, eternal life and meaning in this life will go in one ear and out the other. Our friends and neighbors will really not grasp anything that we want to say to them about Jesus if they're not first convinced, verse 24, of the God who made the world and all things in it. If they don't believe, verse 26, that he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then notice how Paul preaches God not only as creator but as sustainer. Verse 25, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Verse 26, he has determined our appointed times and the boundaries of our habitation. In him, verse 28, we live and move and exist. In other words, God is not only the one who gave us life, he's the one who keeps us living. Paul told that to the Athenians, and we should tell it to our friends and co-workers as well. God is the one who's given you the very air that you breathe. Don't you think that he deserves that you should honor him? And another reason to tell them that God is our sustainer is that God is not like our idols. God is not like our idols, Paul said to the Athenians. The idols in Athens had to have their houses built for them, verse 24. The idols had to be served, verse 25, by human hands. Maybe the people in Athens, as with the Hindu gods today, sometimes brought little snacks and set them out before their gods. But the creator God, Paul says, doesn't need that. Doesn't need it at all. He is not served by human hands, verse 25. No, it is his hands in the latter part of the verse that serve us. He is the one who gives us our food, not vice versa. He sustains us. So God is utterly unlike Zeus or Hermes or today Vishnu or Krishna. He's utterly unlike the Western gods that people worship in this country. Devotion to money or achievement or self-image or sex. All these things cost us. They take from us. Just like the gods of the Athenians. They require our constant efforts to prop them up. But the God of the Bible gives rather than taking. He is not needy. He is not like our idols. That's good news, isn't it? That's what Paul tells the folks in Athens. And that's what we need to tell our friends And Paul also teaches the folks in Athens that this God is not difficult to find. He's not difficult to find. Verses 26 through 28. He made from one nation, from one man, excuse me, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and exist. 
God has ordered his world so that if you care to look, he is not far. He is very conspicuous. No, he isn't himself physically visible like the Athenian gods were. And the second commandment forbids us trying to make him so. But in the boundaries in which God has placed us, in this patch of creation in which you and I live and move and exist, God is everywhere around us. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, Paul says in Romans 1, being understood through what has been made. You look at the tree and you say, there is a God. Now the tree is not God. And God is not the tree. And God is not somehow in the tree. But when we look at the tree, and when we consider all the xylem and phloem and roots and sap and leaves all coming together to produce red delicious apples, we ought to say to ourselves, it is obvious that someone made that thing. There is a God. And he's not hiding from me. He is not far from each one of us. Show that to your friends who are skeptical about the reality of God. Show them that if they will look around, God is not difficult to find. Show them too, as Paul says here, that they are made in his image. In him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. In other words, his argument is, God is not our creation, we are his, and we are his children. We are made in his image. We have been made somehow like him. And that's another reason that he deserves our honor, right? We are his image bearers. We reflect to one another what the God who made us is like. And we either reflect poorly on him or we reflect rightly on him. We're made in God's image. That's why every human being is valuable. And that's why we ought to serve the God who created us this way. And show them too that that this God is a merciful God. That's what Paul says does in verse 30, isn't it? To show that God is merciful. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He has shown them that there is a true God and that the gods that they have been worshiping are not really worthy of the name. And therefore, these idol worshipers or any others who are listening to preaching like this should begin to feel very troubled. They should have said to themselves, just as sometimes we ought today, to say to ourselves, what are we going to do? All this time, we've been ignoring our very maker, the one who gives us the very breath that we breathe and every apple that we eat. And worse yet, we've been taking those apples, slicing them up, drying them out, and bringing them as offerings to all these little statues around town. We're in trouble now. What are we going to do? They were in trouble, weren't they? They defended a holy God. They defended the only God. But look at what Paul says in verse 30. God has overlooked the times of ignorance. 
God has been patient. God has been merciful. And that is wonderful news to your friends, especially once they have seen how they've ignored their maker all these years. God hasn't judged you yet. He has been patient with you. He has been merciful with you. There's still time. And then you go on to show them that God's mercy has a purpose. God overlooked the times of ignorance in Paul's day in order to give them time to repent. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all people everywhere that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is merciful, but he's merciful with a point. In other words, if there's no such thing as judgment, there's no such thing as mercy, right? If all is well and all will be well and there's no reason to fear any sort of judgment, then there's no such thing as mercy either. So when we tell people that there's mercy, there's mercy with a point. The mercy is God's patience with us before the day of judgment. But there is a judgment. And if you love your neighbors, if you love your friends, if you love your family, you will tell them that there is a judgment. You will say to them, God has been patient with you, but he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And therefore you must, verse 30, repent. Now those are difficult words to say, I know. People don't like to hear them always and we don't like to say them because of that. But I think I've shared with you before, I saw a a YouTube video of a guy named Penn Gillette. He's an atheist, illusionist, and entertainer. Some of you have seen him on TV. He's one half of the team, Penn and Teller. And here's what he said, if I can paraphrase. This is an atheist. If you knew that someone was about to be hit by a truck, wouldn't you do everything you could to warn them, even tackle them out of the way if you had to? And then he says, how much more if you really believe that there's a hell? Would you not warn people? That's the word of a self-described atheist, and it's a good word. Here's another point, of one of those points of contact, right? Someone who doesn't believe God, but they get something. He has something right that can be built upon. If you believe that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world, then like Paul, you must tell people that. Not in an ugly way. Not in a self-righteous way that makes them almost think that you'd be glad if they went to hell. But you tell them in a forthright, compassionate way, even with tears in your eyes, if the Lord grants them to you. You say, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So please repent and let me tell you about God's son who can rescue you from such judgment. And that's where Paul goes next, isn't it? He speaks of God's son In verses 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Through a man whom he has appointed. And we must always be sure that we get this far in our sharing about the one true God. We must always speak, as the hymn writer puts it, about the man of God's own choosing. 
Many times, yes, we must lay a foundation first. We must go back further in the story. We must tell people that there is a God who made them, that he's the one who gives them their very breath, that he's different from their idols, that he is near, that they should seek him and repent for not having done so. We must sometimes back up and say all of these things first, but we must always trace the storyline all the way down eventually to Christ because we can tell people all we want about God, but the facts still remain that no one comes to the Father, Jesus said. No one comes to the Creator, Sustainer God, but through Jesus. And so Paul comes in verse 31 to tell these people about Jesus. This is what he's been driving at all along. He tells them that, that this man of God's own choosing is coming to judge the world and that God has proven this man's legitimacy by raising him from the dead. Notice again the accent on the resurrection that these apostles always had. But it doesn't seem like Paul gets very far here. He doesn't seem to share nearly as much about Jesus as we might hope he would or expect that he would. And as I said earlier, this has puzzled me sometimes. Paul, why didn't you say more? I'm not sure, but I think maybe that... Paul was just getting to the crescendo of his sermon there in verse 31 when all the sneering took place because of what he had said about the resurrection and that maybe Paul didn't just quite get to finish. Maybe he got cut off by all the sneering before he could finish explaining Christ and saying all that he wanted to. But however much he actually got to say about Jesus, it's important to note that that was where Paul was aiming at all along. He wasn't simply content to convince the Athenians that there is a a God. He was passionate to tell them about this God's Son, about the Savior, about the one mediator between God and men. Because if all he told them was about the Creator, but never told them that their Creator has sent a Savior, then no one would have been saved. For again, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me. But some were saved, weren't they? That's what we're told. Some did believe. Yes, some of the people sneered that day in verse 32 because the fact of Jesus' resurrection seemed like a silly thing to them. And some will sneer at us today for believing the same. But if we will frankly and faithfully work people through the gospel from the beginning and all the way through to Christ, there will be other people who will say with some of these Athenians, we shall hear you again concerning this. I want to know more. Can we have lunch again? And some will even join with you, verse 34, and believe, like Dionysius and Damaris and others with them. So go out and share Christ. Share him with cultural Jews who already know much of what you know. Share him with cultural Greeks who know almost nothing of what they need to know. You may not be able to do it, as we said, all in one sitting like Paul did at Mars Hill. But as you have opportunities, work your friends and family through these same Mars Hill truths. Tell them that there is a God who made us and who cares for us and who gives us the very air that we breathe. Tell them that he's a much better master than any of the idols that they are currently serving. Tell them that he is not far from each one of us. Show them that the creation itself declares his existence. 
Tell them that there's a judgment coming for those who sin against him. For those who either close their eyes to his existence altogether or who, believing him, still break his laws. But then tell them that he's a patient God, that he's merciful, and that even now he's giving them time to repent. And tell them most of all that this God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Tell them the meaning of the cross. Tell them how the Son of God was crushed for our iniquities. Tell them how He died the death that we deserve because of our sins. And that by His scourging, we are healed. And then tell them that His Father has raised Him from the dead. That He is alive. And that He's coming soon. Yes, to judge the world in righteousness. But also to gather together His elect from the four winds. And so... We shall always be with the Lord. And then urge them, verse 34, very simply, to join with you and believe.